This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So our current, uh, by the way, my name's Ted. One of the elders here, glad to be here with you. Uh, Our current sermon series is entitled, as you can see, I think, uh, Sing and Displaying Jesus. Um, And we're learning that the whole of the Christian life can be summarized as an increased and ongoing uh, seeing of Jesus, and the whole of the Christian life can be summarized as well as an increased and ongoing display of Jesus. And so uh, we're about six sermons into this series, and we've been saying that seeing Jesus uh, is is a metaphor in the Bible uh, for believing in Jesus for resting in Jesus, for receiving Jesus, for having the eyes of your heart lay hold of him and all that he is, uh, has been, and will be for you uh, by the grace of God. We've been saying uh, that the phrase displaying Jesus uh, means that we're living our life as an icon or as an ambassador or as a servant of God. So in 1 Corinthians Uh, Paul says an awful lot about us, but three images or three illustrations or three descriptions he gives of Christians is that we're literally icons, we're statues, we're images of Jesus, that we're ambassadors for him, that we we go forth in his name and accomplish his agenda and speak his words, and we die to our own will in order to live for his will. And then last but not least, uh, Paul and many, many Authors in the books of the Bible call us a servant of God, Uh, that because he has redeemed us and he has given us life and because he has taken on death in our place, we in turn give him our lives. We in turn uh, give him all that we have because he gave us all that he had uh, to have us. And so to to display Jesus is to become the heart and the hands and the feet and the words and the emotions of Jesus uh, to a world that's in great need of him. But not just in a general sense to the world that's in great need of him, but in a very particular sense, wherever God calls us in our unique lives, he sends us into our families and into our homes and into our callings and into our schools to literally let people have a sight of and a taste of and an experience of Jesus because of all that Jesus has done for us. And so the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we we are told that God is by his Holy Spirit transforming us into the likeness of Jesus and that God is increasing in us our capacity to display Jesus. 
But there's a sequence, there's a flow, there's a pattern uh, in the Bible, not just 2 Corinthians 3.18, the verse upon which this series is being built, but the Bible over and over talks about the fact that if you want to display Jesus, you have to become like Jesus, but if you want to become like Jesus, you have to lay your eyes upon him very regularly. You have to frequently see him. So again, in the verse on the screen behind me, our foundational verse for this entire series, we see that as we behold the glory of God, and the glory of God is said to be Jesus and the gospel of Jesus in the next verses of chapter 4 in, in 1 Corinthians. As we behold Jesus and his gospel, we're transformed into his image. To display him, we have to see him. But to see him, we have to be very intentional about seeking him. In essence, this mini-series within the series that we're in right now, that, that's what it's all about. It's all about intentionality. Again, to display Jesus, you have to see Jesus, but to see Jesus, you have to seek Jesus. It's about intentionality. We said last week, we, we mentioned Rehoboam in the Old Testament. We talked about him as, as the king of Judah, and we said uh, that he, quote, did evil because he did not set his heart or prepare his heart to seek the Lord. So you could say he did evil because he didn't see the Lord, but you could say he didn't see the Lord because he didn't seek the Lord. If you're part of the City Bible Reading Initiative or of what we call CBR, this initiative where we and many others try and read through the scriptures together in community, if you're part of that, you may have noticed this theme again in verses, uh, I would say chapters, I think 14 to 16 in Second Chronicles, uh, where, where we read about King Asa. And if you remember, it said at the beginning of his reign, he did what was good and what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's verse three of chapter 14. And, and it says that he commanded the people to seek the Lord. Uh, that's verse four of chapter uh, uh, 14. And he told the people in verse 7, we have sought the Lord and he has given us peace. And he and the people become so intentional about a life of seeking after the Lord that they entered into a covenant in chapter 15, a covenant with one another where they said, we're going to seek the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul. And they decided together that whoever did not seek the Lord, whoever was not intentional about seeing the Lord and his salvation of them, that they should be put to death. That's an awfully extreme thing to do and to say. And we don't know if anybody actually died from not seeking the Lord, but, but King Asa and the citizens of Judah decided it's so important for us to, to seek out the Lord. Let's make an amazing promise and commitment to one another that if we don't seek him in order to see him, in order to display him, we will bring havoc and evil and harm to our community and not good. And in fact, the Bible seems to indicate that this was a pretty positive thing that they did because right after that it said, quote, Asa's heart was wholly true during this time. Intentionality. Now, you know, if you keep reading in chapter 16, Asa blows it, right? You remember, he fails miserably. And what does the chronicler say is the reason for him blowing it? He stubbornly would not seek the Lord. If we want to do good and right, if we want to love others, if we want to display Jesus, we have to see Jesus. But if we want to see Jesus, we have to seek him. James says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Listen to two other verses, this time in the New Testament. I could give you dozens. Listen to, to these two verses that talk about intentional seeking 
In Colossians 3, Paul, in that entire chapter, is lighting, he's writing about the new self. He's writing about the life of love, and he's describing to them the taking off of the old and the putting on of the new. But this is how he starts the entire chapter. Before you can put on the life of love, before you can act like Jesus, before you can be like Jesus, verse 1, command, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16 and verse 1, he just defined faith as seeing unseen things. It's the conviction uh, that things are true that cannot be seen. In chapter 12, he's going to say, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the beginning and end of your faith. And then in verse 6 of chapter 11, he says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that, that God exists and that God rewards those who seek him. And so we're, we're in this third week of this mini-series within the series on intentionality and on seeking. And we're asking and answering questions uh, like the first one on the screen. Where can we go to regularly see Jesus? If my ability to love my children is based on me seeing Jesus and my ability to see Jesus is based on me seeking Jesus, where can I go to seek Jesus? Or question two, in what venues can we behold the gospel? Where can we go and get an eyeful and a heartful and a mindful of the gospel. And so two weeks ago, we talked about a daily private worship. Last week, we talked about living an ongoing gospel community. We talked about the fact that in these two venues, uh, God gives us sight of the gospel and the sight of Jesus, and God energizes us to move into our days to live for him. And today, we're going to talk about weekly uh, public worship. I want us to realize that the reality uh, that we are experiencing right now is an incredible opportunity. Probably the best opportunity to see Jesus, to remember again, yet again, the gospel, and to soak in God's unconditional love. Two thoughts this morning, two thoughts on public worship. All right, first, that we should gather for public worship. And second, how we can gather for public worship. That we should, and how we can. Okay, so first, my my first goal is to just show you from the Bible that we should gather uh, for public worship. Now, I'm showing you this for two reasons. One, this is a place of failure in my leadership at New City through the years. Two, I think we're particularly weak at this at New City. And so I'm going to take a little bit of time and I'm going to show us that we should gather for public worship. Because some in the church, uh, some in the church today would argue that, that corporate worship is maybe biblically permissible or maybe even biblically wise. But it's not necessarily something expressly called for in the Bible. I, I used to be one of these people. We would argue this way. Corporate worship is permissible. You can do it. It may be wise because of all the good that is there, but, but you can't tell me that I have to go to, pu- to public worship. You may choose to go to public worship, but you can't tell me that I've got to go to public worship. And we would say stuff like this. It's obvious that the Old Testament people of God were expected to gather weekly for worship. And, and it seems pretty obvious in the description of the New Testament church that they too were gathering weekly for worship. 
But the New Testament doesn't say I have to go to worship and it doesn't command me to go to worship. And and so for that reason, it's okay if you want to go. It may even be wise to go. But you can't tell me that I have to go. As you might gather from the way I named the first point, I would like to respectfully and politely disagree. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. It's printed in your worship folder insert. Uh, This passage is all about corporate worship. It's all about public worship. It's all about and primarily about God uh, gathering his people into worship. And so to start from 20,000 feet in in verses 19 through, through 21, the imagery is of the public worship of God and the imagery is from the Old Testament, okay? There's the reference to the Holy of Holies, verse 19. There's a reference to the curtain or the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple or the, the, the tabernacle. There's the reference to Jesus as the great priest over the house of God. But not only is this, uh, is this the, the imagery of public worship, in the first person, plural language, the command in verse 22 is let us draw near. This is the often repeated Old Testament phrase for God's people traveling together towards God's temple or towards God's tabernacle. And then finally and very directly, the author of Hebrews writes this in verse 25. Let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Uh, Meet together is the verb form of the Greek word for synagogue. Let us not neglect synagoguing together, as is the habit of some. And so think about it with me. The original audience of the book of Hebrews was very, very familiar with the Old Testament. The author starts out with the Old Testament public worship imagery of the temple and the tabernacle. The author then commands his listeners to draw near in verse 22, again, using Old Testament language for traveling into public worship. And then he says in verse 25, as they, believers in Jesus, he says, you should keep synagoguing together. And the synagogue, of course, was that public worship space of God's people in the Old Testament for any of his people that didn't live in Jerusalem and didn't live near the temple. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you live in Jerusalem and the temple is still there, but I want you to not to, to not neglect the, the synagoguing together. In other words, you don't have to go to the temple for public worship, but I need you to keep gathering together for public worship. And so not only did the Old Testament clearly call God's people to weekly public worship, and not only did Jesus go, go to the synagogue each and every week, even as an adult, Luke chapter four, and not only did Paul go to the synagogue each and every week, even as a Christian, Acts 17, And not only are there many, many inferences of the New Testament church gathering weekly for worship where this same word for synagoguing is used by multiple New Testament authors. Not only is it the Old Testament, not only is it Jesus, not only is it Paul, not only is it the description of the New Testament church. In Hebrews 10, we have this direct instruction to not neglect, forsake, walk away from synagoguing together. Weekly public worship, it's not just permissible. It's not just wise. It's called for in the Bible. Now, to be sure, there are major, major differences between the public worship of God's Old Testament people and us. For example, Jesus said that when he is done with his life and ministry, we will worship in spirit and truth, meaning that we don't have to travel to any uh, geographic location in, in order to worship. 
And if you read of the New Testament church, you will see them assembling, sometimes in large gatherings, and sometimes they're synagoguing in someone's house. So again, there's massive differences between the Old Testament uh, worship of God's people and the New Testament worship uh, us as God's people. And in fact, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you'll know that these differences are a large part of what the entire book is about. The author of Hebrews, again, is writing to believers in Jerusalem who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And the book is all about the superiority of Jesus, and the book is all about the difference Jesus makes now that he came and lived, died, uh, rose again, and has ascended to heaven. The book is about a long list of things that are unnecessary now that Jesus has, has been here and now that we have faith in him. And again, the book is full of these realities of Old Testament worship that are no longer applicable to God's people. And so isn't it amazing that in the middle of a book telling them all the things they don't have to do anymore, the author of Hebrews clearly tells them, keep synagoguing in public worship. It's not just permissible. It's not just wise. It's not just described. It's prescribed in the Bible. Now, two reasons why I'm trying to make this really clear. Again, first, this is where I think I've failed in my leadership of New City. When I planted this church, we emphasized community at the expense of public worship. In my story, public worship was overemphasized, gospel community was underemphasized. And in my folly and in my sin, I erroneously promoted community at the expense and often juxtaposed with public worship. Instead of saying both are biblical, both are really valuable, both are incredible places to go and see Jesus, I made fun of my story and in effect gave us all an excuse to undervalue this reality. And as I look back on that, I am grieved by it. I feel conviction about it. I am here to not just say that I was wrong and ask for your forgiveness. I'm here to begin the road of restitution and repair. I believe where we lack in our mission is directly tied to our lack of commitment to public worship. The second reason why I'm trying to make this clear is this. Attendance at weekly public worship seems to be an obvious weakness for our church and seems to be an obvious opportunity for us to grow. There are a lot of great qualities about this church. The volunteerism in this church is unbelievable. Uh, this church faithfully gives money year in and year out. This church leans into gospel community unlike any other church I know of with our demographics. I'm proud to be a part of this church. I'm glad you let me be your pastor. But I, I still think that as a whole, ironically probably not you since you're here, but as a whole, I think we may be missing it when it comes to public worship. I get this sense because I can see the City Kids uh, Kid Check Report each and every week, and literally three to four dozen families are not here every week. 
I get this sense because I watch all of my community groups through the years, not just the one that I'm in now, but I just watch us. And I watch our habits, and I watch our customs, and I watch our thinking. I watch social media, and I think I see us undervaluing this incredible opportunity to feast on the gospel of Jesus. I just get the sense that we're a little weak at this, and so I want to be clear about it. I get the sense that we think about worship this way. I'll go to worship if I don't have anything better to do. Instead of thinking about worship this way. It would take a really good reason for me to miss out on worship. You see, I'll go to worship if I don't have anything better to do or if I'm not tired or if it's not beautiful outside or if it's not, there are not good waves at the beach or if there's not a good sporting event on. That mentality flows from seeing worship as permissible and maybe wise. But thinking this way, sometimes I'll have to miss worship for a good and legitimate reason flows from the thinking that worship is commanded in the Bible. I think we often think of public worship in terms of convenience. If it's, I know this because I have to come. And that's how I feel about it. When I see y'all at the beach or at Disney, I'm like, oh man, I have to go to worship. I think we think about it in terms of convenience. It's convenient for me to get a check. And so I come because it's my job. <laughs> I think it's convenience. This is, this is thinking that flows from, it's permissible. It may be wise. For, for the original audience, for the original audience of the book of Hebrews, worship was anything but convenient. The Jewish converts to Christianity in Jerusalem were experiencing intense persecution at the hands of the Pharisees, men, women, and children. If they were caught synagoguing in the name of Jesus, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. If they were caught synagoguing on the first day of the week, that's what Luke says in Acts 20. We know from other documents in this time, in and around uh, Judaism, that if they were caught synagoguing in the name of Jesus, they could be arrested and flogged and even stoned. This was the job that Paul had prior to conversion. It's easy to see, it's easy to see why some of them slipped into the habit of not meeting together. There would be a lot of reasons to not go to worship. But God, through the book of Hebrews, told them that they needed to be in the habit of public worship. If God told them, listen, I know it's inconvenient, but I want you to push through those inconveniences and I want you to go to worship. If God told them that, do you think maybe he wants us to push through our inconveniences and go to worship as well? You talk about every opportunity lost if you're stoned. Do you think maybe God's saying, listen, I know there's other opportunities out there, but I want you to say no to those opportunities. And I want you to come into the worship of Jesus for the gospel of grace. So to be clear, there are legitimate reasons for missing worship. If you look at your passage, there's a clue to this. The author warns against making it a habit or a custom or a practice to miss worship. And what that tells me is that simply missing worship is not what's being talked about here. And what that tells me is that everyone who's not here today doesn't need to be shamed and flogged. 
Although that sounds kind of fun. Just joking. There are legitimate exceptions to the rule, but the rule is attendance. There are legitimate reasons to not follow the command in, in a burdensome ma- matter. You know, in fact, when Jesus is talking about the Sabbath, that's the main problem he has with the Pharisees. He's like, listen, I don't want sacrifice. I want mercy. He says, you completely underestimate what God is doing for you in the Sabbath. You completely miss what God is calling you to in Sabbath worship. You completely miss it if you go to sacrifice and you don't go to mercy. And so it's clear that that there are good and legitimate reasons to not follow the command in this burdensome way. But the command is to gather. If we wanna display Jesus to our coworkers and to our neighbors and to our friends, to our spouse, to our children. We have to see Jesus in order to be like Jesus. And if we, want, if, we ha- if we want to see Jesus, and if we have to see Jesus, then we have to be intentional about seeking Jesus. And there are more places to seek Jesus than worship. But for thousands of years in the first and the second testament, God has said, come into worship and see Jesus here. And so first, that we should gather for public worship. And second, how we can gather for public worship. So now I want to show you the, the posture or the manner of our actual gathering. The posture or the manner of our gathering. Okay, so if you look back in your text. First, the author of Hebrews tells us that we can have confidence when we gather for worship. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Confidence, boldness, poise, assertiveness. The opposite of confidence is uncertainty and doubt and and sheepishness and, and hesitancy. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And the author of Hebrews tells us to draw near to God with a true or sincere or genuine heart. It doesn't say draw near to God so long as you have a good and perfect heart. It just says draw near to God with an honest and a genuine and a sincere and a forthright and a forthcoming heart. We don't have to come to worship uh, uh, with full assurance um, so long uh, as we've been good. We gather for worship with an honest heart filled with the certainty that comes from the faith that we have in the gospel. So when we're told to come in, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, to come in through the blood of Jesus, to come in through the way he made available to us in his body, we're not being told, come in with a good heart. We're basically being told, come in with a repentant heart. Just come in honest. Come in as you are. You don't get assurance from being good this week. You get assurance because you have faith in the gospel. How do we gather? How can we gather for public worship? First with confidence, second with honesty. Next, verse 22, the second half of that verse. Come with your hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I mean, literally, it's a toilsome conscience, a a burdened conscience, a, a conscience that is laboring. And the author is saying, don't come to worship with your conscience heavy laden because of all the sin you committed this week. But because of the full assurance that you have by faith, come with a free conscience. 
Don't come with a heavy conscience, looking to do it right for God to somehow forgive you and like you again. Come with a clean conscience. Not because you've been perfect, but because you have faith in the one who was perfect. And he died for our sins. Finally, look at verse 23. We, we can gather for public worship, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You don't walk into worship holding fast to your goodness and your righteousness. Even if you blew it last night, you're like, at least I'm going to church this morning. I'm going to hold fast to that. We hold fast to our confession that our hope is in the faithfulness of God and not in ourselves. What's the point? We don't gather for worship in order to be saved, to be loved, or to be accepted by God. We gather for public worship in the confidence that we're already saved, that we're already loved, that we're already accepted by God. You see, in religiosity or in legalism, we have to gather for worship in order to be loved. But in the gospel, we get to gather for worship uh, in the honest confidence that we're already unconditionally loved. You see, it seems to me that in the story of New City, those of us who have, who have minimized or underemphasized public worship, those of us who have done that are almost always the people who at some point in our lives we thought of public worship or we gathered for public worship in a legalistic way. It seems to me that those of us who have argued for not having to go to worship are the people who in our stories had to go to worship to be saved. In other words, it's usually the people who attended worship at some point in their lives to earn or keep their salvation who will overreact in regards to public worship once they realize that salvation is by grace. But the Bible responds to us this way. The public worship of God has never been about God's people earning salvation. Love, life, identity, security, confidence, hope. The public worship of God has always been about God's people celebrating salvation and love and identity and security and hope. All given to them through the steadfast love and the unconditional love and the rich grace of God. We do not gather for public worship so that Jesus can see us being good. We gather for public worship to see Jesus, to see the goodness of the gospel, to see him yet again being perfect for us and then dying in our place. It has always been this way. Think about the Old Testament people of God. Think about the commandment to observe the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5, the fourth of the Big Ten. The people were told to stop working. The people were told to rest the people were told to provide rest to any and all human and beast that they had influence over, that they had authority over. And this is why, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, you shall remember. It's a worship word in the Old Testament for, for bringing to mind so powerfully that it changes the way you think and live life. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
It's always been this way. Even the Old Testament people of God didn't observe the Sabbath to be delivered or saved or redeemed. They were commanded to observe the Sabbath to remember that they were being redeemed, that they had been redeemed, that they will be redeemed. In a moment, we're gonna participate in the sacrament of communion. And I wanna look again at this second point, this point on how we can gather for public worship. I wanna look at it from another angle. The first way of understanding this point is to see clearly in the passage that we gather in boldness and in confidence and in joy and in hope. We gather as the saved people of God. In a moment, we're gonna talk about how we can do that, how we can walk into the holy presence of God and not be consumed. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this salvation of us, that even uh, the commands that you give to us are for our own good, they're for our liberty, uh, they're for our growth, uh, they're for uh, your kindness to us. Jesus, we thank you that in your life, you fulfilled every drop of the commands of God that not one aspect of the law was lost on you, not one aspect of the law was violated by you, you kept it all completely. Thank you for the fact uh, that if we come to worship, we are not loved more, and if we don't come to worship, we're not loved less. Thank you, God, that in your grace and kindness, you decided that we would be more obedient and more fruitful from the heart as soon as we realized that we didn't have to do anything to enjoy your love. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see uh, how it is in our lives, past and present, that we try to earn your love through the commands that you have given us for our salvation and good. Would you help us to understand how uh, we're missing it, how either we're trying uh, to earn your love or we're acting as though uh, we won't have a better life by doing uh, what you've told us to do. Would you just open our eyes to the fullness of all that you are doing for us and in us, Lord Jesus, we pray.